Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Let's talk about the vaccine plan and which workers are getting the vaccine first. Now, have a listen to this. Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking yesterday about the AstraZeneca vaccine and which specific workers are going to get it. Have a listen. Particularly in food processing plants, in agricultural operations with shared accommodations, We've seen outbreaks that have affected not just uh, the, the camps and the accommodations, but have spilled over into our communities in the large industrial camps, particularly the ones under the, the PHO industrial camps order with congregate accommodation for workers. And we know that these workers often fly in and fly out, and they can bring risk from the community that they are uh, in when they go into the camp and take risk home with them to places across British Columbia and across this country. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday talking about the priority for food processing plants, agricultural operations, large industrial work camps. They would get the vaccine first. Now, what about some of these other frontline workers? What about the teachers? Let's talk about that now. My guest is Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Terry, thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, thank you for doing this. Are you disappointed to to learn that once again the teacher is not being prioritized here to get the vaccine? It's definitely disappointing, and and I think you know from what I understand, there is going to be more prioritization of workers coming up. But absolutely, teachers need to be amongst the frontline workers that get the vaccine as well. Um, and we don't have much data to go by because, of course, governments are refusing to re- release school-based data. Um, but what we do see um, from WorkSafe is disturbing. And so we see education workers as the second highest. They have the second highest number of claims out of all the sectors. And of those claims, 76% of them are elementary school teachers. And wow. so we're seeing uh, some trends here that are disturbing. And they haven't been contradicted by any other evidence that's been produced. Okay, so when you say WorkSafe BC, you're talking about teachers who have got COVID at work, at school, and are now applying for funds, And have had a claim uh, accepted. Wow, okay. And so what we see is 89% of the elementary school teachers that have made a claim have had that claim accepted. And as I say, education workers have the second highest number of claims. And mostly it's elementary school teachers. And what we see in elementary school teachers at schools, of course, is no mask mandate and uh, no physical distancing. And so we don't think that's coincidental. Which, which workers have the highest rate of claims for, for COVID at WorkSafe? And that's healthcare workers, and that's long-term yeah, okay. care workers, it's acute care workers, and that, that's completely expected. Yeah. Um, and it's significantly higher than teachers. But teachers are number two. And so, you know, we aren't getting data from government around in-school transmissions. We aren't getting data about the number of, you know, workers that have uh, contracted uh, COVID-19 because the WorkSafe data is only a part of it. It's only the teachers that actually applied for a claim. It's not going to be everyone that actually got COVID. And it's, you know, even, and there has to be a presumption there that they got COVID at work. So, 
um, you know, it, it's part of the picture. It's not the whole picture, but it does make a case, we believe, for teachers being prioritized for vaccinations. Okay, I take your point about the government being kind of stingy with some of the information and the health authorities too, but I imagine the union, you guys must keep your own statistics, right? Like, do you know how many outbreaks that there have been or how many teachers have got COVID? You know, it's pretty tough for us to do that because we, you know, in order to do that, teachers keep, you know, confidential information about students, for example. It's very difficult for us to accurately track the data. We couldn't do it any more accurately than what we see parents doing on Facebook. That's why we need government and the provincial health office to step up and release the data. And it's really concerning that they're not doing that. We know they're tracking it. We know they're using it to make decisions, and yet they're not sharing it. Okay, speaking to Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Union, let me play another clip here for you, Terry, from Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. And here she is talking about the need to prioritize the vaccine in workplaces where it's hard to control an outbreak of COVID. Here's what she said. What we are looking at is the businesses that are operating, that are operating using COVID safety plans, where there is uh, an ongoing risk in the workplace to workers in those settings. And we have done a lot of analysis of those settings, and there are some where it's more challenging. There's larger numbers of people. It's more challenging for the COVID safety plans to be adhered to, and it has effects on worker safety that reflects into uh, our communities. Okay, now she's talking there about like poultry, poultry plants and, and think, workplaces like that. But I don't know, when you hear that, do you think she could just as well be t- talking about as BC schools and classrooms? Well, we think so. And again, we only have the WorkSafe data to go by. And we're also not, you know, contradicting anything that's being said. Like, we think that workers that are in danger um, of of contracting COVID ought to be vaccinated. We're just saying teachers need to be in that group. And so, you know, there are other essential workers I know um, that we think should be prioritized as well. Um, But teachers ought to be considered in that group when we look at the data. Okay, we've also seen some outbreaks in individual workplaces where health authorities and officials have gone in to do like a massive uh, vaccination. So we've heard about a Costco where there was an outbreak and all the workers there got shots. We heard about a Vancouver glass uh, facility uh, where there was an outbreak. Again, they go in with the vaccine. Let's listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry on that, about how they're using the AstraZeneca vaccine in particular to troubleshoot these workplace outbreaks. Here she is. The first um, shipment that we received last week of this vaccine, about 60,000 doses, is being used right now to help us address community outbreak response. We knew that this was, uh, in consultation with my colleagues in public health, using the vaccine to help break chains of transmission in communities, particularly where we are seeing ongoing risk and transmission in clusters and outbreaks in workplaces. These are the outbreaks that are happening now, and this helps us to reduce the transmission that we are seeing in our community right now. Okay, we see some quick response or vaccine in individual work sites where there there have been outbreaks. I mean, we've seen some outbreaks in schools, right? Do you, do you think that... Go ahead. Yeah, we have. We've had yeah. school closures. We had yeah. one recently in Abbotsford, um, and yet we're not seeing a similar response. And And that's been the case all along. I mean, look at the Fraser Health Authority. Look at the Surrey School District. I mean, the rates of... Uh, of exposure notifications and clusters have been very high to the point where, you know, even the Fraser Health Authority has allowed 
the Surrey School District to modestly increase some of the safety precautions in some of those schools. And it's not all the schools either. And so even if we saw a plan around prioritizing the schools where we're seeing repeated exposure notifications, you know, 20 exposure notifications and more, um, that would make some sense to us. But, you know, without the transparency of the data being released, without, you know, we're hearing um, that, you know, in-school transmission is low and we're hearing you know, di- different things about different workplaces, but we're not seeing the data. And that's very problematic, especially when we see other jurisdictions able to produce that data. So yeah, it's, right. it's really concerning. Okay, last question for you. Would BC teachers be willing to take the AstraZeneca vaccine? I mean, we've seen some concerns around the world about this particular vaccine. Canadian health officials telling Canadians, do not worry, this is a safe and effective vaccine. Would teachers, if if teachers were offered that vaccine, would you advise them to take that one? I would absolutely 100% advise them to take any one that they're offered. I'm seeing no hesitancy amongst teachers. We certainly haven't, you know, heard from any teachers that are concerned about any particular vaccine. I think teachers would be happy to get vaccinated. And again, you know, we think that ought to be the case. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the battle over the Vancouver Police Department budget now. The VPD had been seeking a $6 million increase in their budget. Vancouver City Council said no. Uh, They froze the budget instead. Now, some people would like to see the city go even further than that and drastically reduce uh, the police spending in the city, put that money into social services instead. It's called the Defund the Police Campaign. Let's discuss now what a great panel I've got for you on this issue. Doug Spencer, 30 years with the Vancouver Police Department. He was a gang expert there. He's now retired from the VPD. He works to keep kids out of gangs now. Doug, thanks for coming on again. You're more than welcome, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. Garth Mullins also on the line. He's the host of the Crackdown podcast about drugs and drug policy. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show as well. Hi, Garth. Hey, Mike. Good morning. How's it going? It's going good. Thank you guys for being here. Garth, let me go to you first. Can you give me, can you make the pitch for defund the police? What does that mean and what do you think it should look like? 50% reduction in the Vancouver police budget would take us back to somewhere in the 2000s. Uh, so it's the police budget's doubled in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. And uh, I think a lot of that money could go to, uh, you know, proper community services, people who are experts at outreach to people who use drugs, people with mental health issues. The police aren't and they don't want to be doing that. And they've told us that. So let's get people who know how to do this into the mix. Less okay. people will die, more good, healthy results for communities and more safety for everyone. Okay, Doug Spencer, what do you say to that? He says, cut the police budget in half. What do you say? Yeah, anything that cuts back the amount of policemen in the street is just not safe, period. I mean, uh, you know, there's talk all over the states. Minneapolis reduced the police. Now they're uh, screaming at themselves why they did it, because they're trying to put millions and billions of dollars out there and try and recruit members back so they get their numbers back up right there's you know everything all the crime has gone up and the manpower hasn't changed since 2008 so it's really getting unsafe out there garth what do you say to that uh, let me jump in there uh the vpd's stats show that crime last year stayed the same as it was the year before and it's been broadly going down for years and years and years you know we had 
14 murders last year, and the police have a very low rate of being able to solve the very small amount of murders that we see in Vancouver. So we got to ask ourselves, if it's about crime, the crime's not going up. It's not having this big dramatic chaos that we're constantly being told in the media, and the police aren't really that great at solving it anyway. Okay, so well, we got it. We do have a that argument. We do got a gang war going on out there, Doug. What do you? I mean, you were part of the gang squad. What about that? Yeah, it's never been worse. You know, people reflect back to the days of Bindi Johal and stuff, which is back in two thousand. But now there's shootings every day, and you know, some don't get reported. Um, it, it, it's unbelievable. I've never seen it worse as far as gangs. So. Garth, what what do you say to the argument that other cities in North America, primarily in the United States, who have done a reduction in their police budget, like Doug was just making this point, uh, regretted it or have seen problems? I mean, is that your understanding of it, too? I mean, some of these cities just began thinking about this in less than a calendar year ago. So we have no idea what's happened yet. So I think it's Mm -hmm. too soon for regrets or uncertainty or anything like that. Uh, You know, I think we should do this in a smart way. We should refund communities, not just defund police. We should refund and build the services in communities that the police are responding to right now. They say a quarter of all these 911 calls are about mental health situations. Well, let's just take that off of the police's plate. Let's have proper funded mental health services in Canada. Okay, but if you drill down in those numbers, I mean, if you talk to the police about the mental health calls that they do receive, they say that 84% of those calls involve... a threats of danger to the public 26 percent of the calls so more than a quarter are actually from health professionals so social workers health professionals who are already intervening in a mental health call calling the police for backup 12 12 percent okay let's talk about the safety issue safety for whom because a large uh, amount of these kind of calls ends in violence against the person with the mental health call families regret having asked police to do wellness checks when their relatives end up dead or shot Uh, So we have to figure, if you're having a bad day, mental health-wise, having someone roll up on you with a uniform, sirens, and a gun might actually escalate things, might make things harder to solve. Yeah, but a quarter of the calls are from health professionals who are asking the police to come in because it's a dangerous situation. They can't handle it. We've got to equip them better, too. But I tell you, I work with an organization, Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. We de-escalate people all the time. We handle that kind of outreach all the time. Doug Spencer, what do you you say to that? So police officers are doing this more and more. They're responding to these uh, social problems we see in the streets. They're mental health calls. They're homeless homeless problems. There's there's drug overdoses. What do you you say about, you know, I I know the, the, why do the police need to respond to some of these calls in your mind? Yeah, the, these people, the, you know, they're they're suffering uh, mental health stuff. They're addicted to drugs uh, or a combination thereof. They're in a lot of turmoil, and they're extremely volatile. I've dealt with stuff like that. I worked in the mental health car, with, which is with a, uh, a nurse. And uh, for two days, I did that. And the stuff they go to, people with schizophrenia and and all sorts of issues, they are so volatile. You can't send mental health people in there, which are much needed. I, I might agree with the other speaker. They need more mental health. They need more social workers. Yeah. They need way more addiction treatment. Uh, there was a poor uh, ex-addict that was down trying to counsel people in Skid Row a couple months ago, and he was stabbed to death. I mean, you, you just can't go in... Uh, without help. 
and Garth, Garth what do you say to that? It's not an exact uh, science as far as dealing with these people. So sometimes it, it goes bad, but for the amount of times that uh, VPD deals with them, it normally goes good. We we get people the the help they need. Yeah, Garth, what do you say to that? I mean, I'm one of these people, right? Like I I've been a lifelong opioid user. I've had uh, mental health issues. And what helped me was methadone and PTSD treatment, not a badge and a gun. That's what we need to give people is the tools they actually need. I want to see those things funded in society and roll back the police budget to just where it was in the 2000s. What you know, would happen? To find a smarter way of doing this. We keep doing the same thing. What would happen, though, if you cut the Vancouver Police Department budget in half like you advocate what about the people that the cops are dealing with, like the people that you represent and advocate for, so drug users, okay? So let's say the police respond and they're on the scene of a drug overdose. VPD offers, officers carry naloxone with them. They are authorized to administer that naloxone and save someone's life. W- would you acknowledge, Garth, that Vancouver police officers have saved the lives of drug users who are overdosing when they use naloxone to save their lives? Well, ever since Doug said this on the show last week, I've been searching out for an example. Uh, you know, like we, we do do investigative journalism on Crackdown and we have been getting awards for it. So we're looking, you know, and we're asking. Uh, it was originally a call from us at Vandu, uh, drug users, that police should carry naloxone. They resisted. And we are the primary frontline workers in this. We're the people who use naloxone to reverse overdoses. So if police care about overdoses... They shouldn't park their cop cars right outside of safe injection sites and overdose prevention sites to have the effect of dissuading people from going there. But I guess what I'm saying to you is police officers now carry naloxone with them. They do administer naloxone on overdose victims. And I'm suggesting to you they've probably saved dozens of people's lives. You you don't agree with that? Well, I think police should carry naloxone. Yeah, that's one of the people who demanded it. Absolutely. Police should be trained in first aid. You know, if, if we got people... You know, I think everybody who has a first aid kit should have naloxone in the first aid kit. Everybody should know this skill. Okay, Doug, what do you say to that? Because police officers do carry this. They intervene with drug overdoses all the time. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I can tell you, I saved a guy down by uh, the commercial SkyTrain station at the McDonald's. He had uh, overdosed, and my partner and I went down. It was pretty obvious he was uh, having a fentanyl overdose, and uh, we gave him naloxone, and he went from dead to sitting up. It actually frightened me because I hadn't seen that. And, uh, you know, I went and followed up at the hospital with the guy. I spoke with him for half an hour, and he had all sorts of reasons why he's using drugs. He had a really terrible upbringing and stuff. And uh, I ended up getting the guy a bed and treatment. So, like, I want the same thing. Every We all want the same thing. We want these people to get their lives back, right? So, um you know, I can tell you, I think about 60 policemen have saved, the last I heard, had saved addicts with naloxone. So we carry it. We originally, you know, we're not doctors. There was some hesitancy for us using it uh, on addicts. But you know what? I'm not going to stand there and, or in front and watch somebody knowing I have something that could save the person and not use it. Garth, what do you say to that? Go ahead and sue me. I I don't uh, care. I guess I want to commend Doug. I just want to say thank you for saving that guy's life. That's a a stand-up move. I congratulate you. And like I said before, we wanted police to carry naloxone. You know, so 
and I appreciate I appreciate that, and I appreciate. Why you do you want? Why do you want to cut? Why no. do you want to? Why do you want to cut their budget in half then? Naloxone is cheap. You can cut the budget, and police can still carry naloxone, no problem. The money can be better spent, is what I'm saying. There are more effective paths yeah. to community safety because this one isn't working. Okay, but what about, I mean, Doug, I mean, when you take a look at the police statistics on mental health calls or the type of calls that Garth is talking about, and, and the large majority of them include threats of, to the public public safety, or in, in some cases, there's a weapon present. I mean, do you see, what are the options? I mean, if you send a, I imagine, like, if you send social workers down there to deal with a dangerous situation, someone with a weapon, someone who's threatening someone else, how is a social worker supposed to deal with that? I mean, don't you need a cop there? Yeah, no, you, you do for everybody's safety, including the person who's uh, having an episode and stuff, right? Um, we we get tr- extra training to de-escalate situations. Once in a blue moon, it, it doesn't work and things go sideways. But for, you know, 99.9% of the time, we're able to talk the person down, talk them off the edge of the bridge. Um, but we aren't... Uh, health professionals we're, we're cast into that role because of the emergency of it right if somebody could jump off a bridge you better get there fast so we do what we can do but i agree we need more social work more programs but, you can't, but, but yeah, I, mean, I mean i've talked to police officers who say yeah heck yeah spend more money on social services spend more money on housing that would be great but you can you take police out of the mix completely so yeah, I'm, I've been suggesting sure. a 50% reduction, right? And we got to drill down. Police do a lot of stuff, not just, I mean, you take these edge cases of, uh, of the high TV drama kind of cop show conflict, and I don't think those represent 90% of the police budget. The police are busy giving people insurance numbers when, they're, uh, when their you know, car gets a, a fender bender or whatever, you know? Okay. So there's a lot of activities that police are doing. We can go through it, but to constantly focus on one class of activities, it skews our whole argument, right? We have to have a discussion about, do we need police in schools? Do we need police sitting in hospital emergency uh, rooms for long hours at a time? Do we we need police in healthcare? Like these are a a whole bunch of things they do now. We got to roll that back. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about defund the police in Vancouver. My guests are Doug Spencer, 30 years with the VPD. Garth Mullins, he advocates for defunding the police. We've got a few minutes for your phone calls here. Lars in Maple Ridge. Hey, Lars. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, personal experience. Um, my hat goes off to Ridge Meadows RCMP. I had to make a call myself. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Had a breakdown. They secured the perimeter. They made sure I wasn't going to hurt myself or anybody else. They handled it beautifully. I think it should stay that way for the safety of everybody. And if need be down the road, if they, if they feel it's safe, maybe you can call in a social worker. But to keep them out of the mix and send a social worker into a, a, a violent situation, you're asking for a lot of trouble. Okay, Thank you so, so Lar- Lars, you still there? Yes, I am. L- Lars, so you're saying you, you yourself had like a mental health episode or something? And yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah, I had a breakdown, and uh, I, I had violent thoughts. Nothing came of it, but I'm telling you the way the Ridge Meadows police handled it. I, they, they secured it. They, they made sure I wasn't going to hurt myself or anybody else. Yeah. And I went to the hospital for a couple hours. Um, every, everything was good. It, it, it was good. But I, I'm saying if you take the police out of it, yeah. You don't know what you're going to get, and you're going to send some poor so- social worker in there 
And if there's violence, they're, they're defenseless. So okay. leave it as it is and work on something where the police can say, everything is cool here, it's safe, let's call in a social worker, we got more important things to do, okay. all good. Lars, thank you for the call. Garth, we just have a minute left, sadly, but go ahead. What, what do you say to him? Lars, I'm glad you're all right now. I'm glad you're safe. Uh, this didn't turn out so well for a member of our organization, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, who died in this exact way. And I, uh, I know that that doesn't always happen. It's just it happens a lot. And I, I want to get us to a place where it doesn't happen at all. But people don't need to worry because I, I, I certainly don't control the police budget. Nobody here does. And in fact, the public doesn't either. The City Council of Vancouver doesn't. Um, nobody does. The police suggest what they want. Oh. And if they don't like the answer that comes back from Vancouver City Council, say, freezing the budget. But, but you just, but you just. Now. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Wayne yeah. Rideout, who's the ex-RCMP, who's the director of police services at BC, unelected person, he will decide. So okay. n- none of us, none of us get a say. Okay, but you just heard, you just heard Lars describe how he was in a violent state of mind with a mental health episode and he called the police on himself and he, he was grateful for the police response there. I mean, Doug, can you comment on that? We just got a minute here. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we have to be there. The police have to be there to make sure everybody's safe, right? You can look at, uh, if you want an example of the the budget thing, it always comes into play. Look at the uh, celebration of fireworks every year. There used to be the fights and stabbings and stuff, and they upped the manpower and now families can go there peacefully with no issue. And then they, they, the mayor at the time, during the Stanley Cup, he cuts back the budget, cuts back the policemen, and you get a full-fledged riot. That, that totally correlates to what happened. If there's not enough policemen on the street, you're going to have rioting in the street, like Gentlemen. what's going on in Portland and stuff, right? Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for being here for an excellent discussion, and we could probably fill the whole show on this, but we'll just have to have both of you back, and I really appreciate you. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Both coming on. All right, welcome back to the show. It's time for Fight That Ticket with Paul Doroshenko. Is it possible to fight City Hall or to fight the law if you get a traffic ticket? Let's talk about that now with Paul. He's a criminal lawyer with Acumen Law, specializing in driving law. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Paul. Nice to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to have you on again. Let me uh, let me throw this one at you. This is one that jumped out at me on uh, Twitter. This was from, posted on Twitter by the Vancouver Police Department. They stop a car for excessive speeding, going 113 clicks an hour in a 50-kilometer-hour zone on Granville Street. The car has got an L for a learner's license, and... Uh, 
the cops are wondering how come the supervisor always gets away scot-free if the cops stop someone in an L vehicle because they wrote up the driver here, the learner, but not the supervisor who's required to be in the vehicle. Do you think that's a loophole? I mean, the cops seem kind of frustrated on that. Well, I understand that the police are frustrated. It is a loophole. It's a mistake. I mean, it's an it's an error in the Motor Vehicle Act that uh, has to be corrected. And, you know, we've seen it before uh, where the supervisor is, uh, is uh, piss-ass drunk or the, yeah, the supervisor yeah. is just sitting there while the person's doing, uh, you know, a bunch of illegal maneuvers, you know, leaving the scene of an accident uh, in a hit-and-run, basically. Uh, yeah, I mean, some super sitting there gets off scot-free. Yeah, some supervisor when you're going that fast. That's amazing. Let's have a listen to the Mike Farnworth here. He's BC Solicitor General here commenting on this case. It's obviously uh, quite concerning. I mean, the, the whole idea of having a supervisor in the car with uh, an L driver is to make sure that they are obeying the rules of the road. Okay, so I don't know what they can do, though. I mean, can you change the law to hold the supervisor accountable, too? Well, I think they can write some uh, piece of legislation that just, uh, you know, add to the Motor Vehicle Act, another section that says, uh, you know, a supervisor is responsible to ensure the person is supervising. And if they're failing to to uh, to fulfill their duties supervising, that's a ticketable offense. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see what the listeners think on that one. Paul, let me ask you about another couple of cases in the news here. And there's always some interesting ones in, in your line of work. And one that really jumped out at you was, uh, what does it take to get a driving prohibition in this province, especially if you dispute the ticket in court? Now, can you t- briefly tell the story about what happened to this one driver who fought the ticket in court and then ended up with a driving prohibition? Well, there's a couple of people that, that sort of it was an interesting scenario. So they go to court. Uh, there's a case called West and one called Payman. These people go to court uh, and they talk to the police officer outside of court. Uh, one, in one case, the fellow makes an application to adjourn his trial and his application is denied and then pleads guilty. Uh, and, you know, a guilty plea, had you paid the ticket at the court registry or you mailed it uh, in or even if you just didn't show up at court, you would have ended up with a fine. But by virtue of the fact that the person's there, the judicial justice prohibits them from driving. So you can get a driving prohibition, obviously, when you, you know, go to court. The, the, there is discretion that the court's got to prohibit you from driving. But what about the circumstances where you go in there and plead guilty? So uh, this went to B.C. Supreme Court because, it, you know, it was the view of these uh, individuals that the court had gone beyond its jurisdiction. Uh, and ultimately, that was the finding. So what happens is... Um, Guy goes into court, pleads guilty, judicial justice gives him a driving prohibition. Well, he wouldn't have got that driving prohibition if he had just gone to the registry and pled guilty. Right, he got so... That driving prohibition if he just mailed the check in. Right, so what was the charge there? What was, what was the, uh, was it excessive speeding or something? Or just, no, it was distracted uh, it, driving? In the West case, it was, uh, it was a speeding offense. And in the, yeah. uh, in the payment case, I think it was uh, excessive speeding. It was a three hundred and sixty-eight dollar fine that he was uh, that he was issued, but he right. also ended up with a uh, with a, a one month driving prohibition, or three month driving prohibition. Right. Okay. So, so nobody went wa- to BC Supreme Court. They appealed it. Right. Right. Nobody wants to have a driving prohibition, of course. So I mean, you know, are you left with a situation where if you fight the court, if you if you dispute the ticket in court, you run the risk of, of having a driving prohibition and on top of the fine, or should you just pay the fine up front? Well, that's the thing. So what yeah. it, the, the, the state of the law seems to be now that if you were to go to court uh, and, um, and plead guilty, you shouldn't get a driving prohibition. And, and the court was giving driving prohibitions, and that was wrong. Uh, 
if you go to court and you and you turn around and walk out, then it's a deemed conviction and you can't get a driving prohibition. But if you go to court and you say, you know, I'm not guilty, I'm going to run a trial, I want to fight this thing, then yeah. arguably the court can prohibit you from driving at the end. You know, you're not, you have a right to a trial. It's a bit of a problem, right? You have a right to a trial, but then if you have a trial, the court's got the authority and jurisdiction to, to prohibit you from driving if, you, they, if you're found guilty. Okay. A lot of people who get collared on a driving infraction, I think, probably are thinking, well, I guess there's there's no way I can fight the law or I can't fight City Hall. I might as well just pay pay the fine. But in your experience as a traffic lawyer, like what's your batting average? Like when you go to court and you fight these tickets, I mean, how often are how often are people successful in, in overturning traffic tickets in court? You know, it depends on the offense and it depends on the facts. And every one of them is different. Uh, you know, if we were to look at our overall success rate, our success rate's very good, but it tells you nothing about your, your case, right? Uh, you know, until you, until you sit down with a lawyer and talk about it and, and figure out, you know, what are the essential elements that they've got to prove? Can they prove the essential elements? Uh, and then, of course, there's the procedural aspect of it. You know, the police officer has to come. The police officer has to testify. If the police officer forgets something that's crucial, uh, during the course of the testimony or or is undermined during the course of being cross-examined, uh, then, yeah, you know, you can end up with an acquittal on a uh, on a traffic ticket. And, and very often it's worth at least talking to a lawyer to figure it out. What's the most common reason for a, tr- a, a ticket to get thrown out of court, in your experience? Uh, very often, you, you know, you're talking to a police officer beforehand and you're looking at their notes and you can see that there's something that they're missing in their notes. And you bring it to the attention of the police officer and, and often they'll say, you know what, I don't remember that and I can't and I'm not going to make it up. So, you know, they'll agree to, uh, to, to walk away from it. But you've got to know what you're looking for. Uh, but it's, it's something different every time, something different every time. You know, I always thought that it was going to get boring. When I started doing this, I thought after uh, after five years, I might have spotted every defense. And I'm 22 years on now, and uh, I'm still finding things new every time. Okay. What surprises you these days? Have you had any surprising cases lately with, you know, maybe you, th- you thought you weren't going to win a case and you ended up winning a case? Well, I mean, often if it's a, if it's a circumstance where there's civilian witnesses coming, um, you know, it's a real wild card. <laughs> you, you put them on the witness stand. Uh, you start hearing the evidence, and and very often people will say, you know, that they uh, uh, something that's different from what you expected them to say in their statement. I, I had a client uh, uh, fairly recently where they, uh, the the civilian was on the witness stand, uh, and um, part of the evidence was IDing my client, and he said the witness said uh, words to the effect of, you know, he looked at me like he didn't know me. And so the next question was going to be, how long have you known this individual? And um, the next question that came out was, you know, well, did he know you? And the answer was no. You're like, mm. okay, well, that's the end of the case. If that's what it really can, comes down to, uh, it, it can be quite funny sometimes. What about, a distra- <laughs> what about a distracted driving ticket? I mean, we hear ads from the cops running these days that, look, don't even think about touching that phone because we've got new high-tech ways of getting you we will get you we will charge you we've heard all about people when you're stopped at a classic stopped at a red light you, ch- you ch- check a quick text message on your phone there's a police officer standing right there looking at you you're busted how easy is it to beat the rap on that on a distracted driving ticket or are you pretty much red-handed 
You know what? Every one of them is different. Um, but a lot of the times police officers walk up and take photographs. There's at least one Vancouver police officer walks up and takes a photograph of you with your phone in your hand uh, and you're caught. Uh, but of course, you know, you show up in court and there can be 10 other things on the list. And, and uh, if you're there and you're prepared to run a trial and they've got a bunch of other people who are uh, sort of also wanting to run a trial, they may choose not to run the trial with you. Uh, and might be looking for some other uh, resolution that leads to, you know, you not getting that conviction or not showing up on your record or something. So, um, you know, are you caught red-handed? Yeah, you might be caught red-handed. There might be some, you know, mitigating factor that you can bring to the attention of the police officer before you end up running your trial that might change their uh, their view of how they should proceed where, on it. Where is the most common place for someone to get nailed for using their phone? Is it usually is it at a red light at an intersection? Red light intersection, uh, traffic jams, construction. Um, the uh, you know when they talk of their high tech methods, it's usually just binoculars from an overpass. Uh, that's one of the things that they do commonly uh, on the island. Um, the uh, West Shore RCMP are uh, are famous for that. These other things okay. where we see them in a bus and things like that, they only ever do that for the media. You know, most of the <laughs> time it's easy to catch people. You know, the police officer's in an SUV beside you. You know, you look at your phone, uh, the police officer's right there. Uh, you know, okay. they, they can pull you over in the next block. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about fighting traffic tickets with my guest, Paul Doroshenko. Your calls to him, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Lincoln in Surrey. Hi, Lincoln. How you doing, guys? Good. So I got an electronic device uh, ticket a few months ago in December, and the guy came in through the passenger side of the truck, and it was raining and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so he gave me the ticket. uh he didn't. He forgot to get me to sign it, so I took the the slip and I put it down on the seat. Remember, the window's open on the passenger side. I'm driving down the road. The window, the the ticket flies out the window on the highway, so I'm not going to stop. So, but I want to dispute it. So, I, uh, how do I dispute it? I call by CBC. They said, well, unless you have the ticket, the copy of the ticket, uh, we can't do anything until the ticket gets uh, uh, entered into the system. And he says that could take. 90 days. Well, you only have 30 days to dispute it. So what do you do? Oh, okay. Uh, Paul. Yeah. Well, there's a deemed conviction after 30 days. Uh, the police officer sends their copy of the ticket in. Very often, um, you know, they'll have it and they will have recorded it. Uh, in those circumstances, there are some fairly complex steps going through court to try and unwind the deemed conviction. It's something that we do occasionally. Uh, most of the time, if it's that circumstance, we try and, and contact the police officer. I'd prefer that you didn't. Uh, try to contact the police officer because, that, you know, anything you say is evidence. Anything your lawyer says is not evidence. Uh, but we try and contact the police officer and see if we can get a copy of the ticket so we can file it in dispute. Okay. okay, when he mentioned that the police officer forgot to ask him to sign the ticket, is that a required step? Not a required step at all. The police don't have oh. to ask you to sign it. There's a document on the back that they can complete that says that they served it to you. Uh, and the reality is that, uh, you know, after 30 days, it's a deemed conviction. So if you want to go in there and, uh, uh, and challenge it, of course, you know, if you, if you don't dispute it, you ended up with a conviction. If yeah, you, so it's not like, if, you know, it's not like he could beat, beat it on without, because he didn't, was not asked to sign the ticket. That's no reason to throw the ticket out. Absolutely yeah. no reason. Okay. okay. Yeah. Jay in Coquitlam. Hey, Jay. Hey, good morning. Hi, go ahead. So 
I purchased a vehicle in Alberta. I have a binder insurance. I'm bringing it back into BC. A couple of blocks from my home, I get pulled over by the police stating I don't have license plate for all that jazz. So I explain to them that I'm importing a vehicle. I have to buy them insurance. The police officer says to me, in 14 years, I've never seen one of these. So she tries to write me up a ticket, but she has to talk to her supervisor. They have to let me go on that. So she decides to give me a ticket for speeding. But that's not the reason she pulled me over, though. She pulled me over for no, no license plate. So there were no, there were no plates there were no plates on the vehicle at all? No, because the buyer of insurance are bringing it over from from Alberta. Oh, okay. Back to the BC, so I get insured. Paul, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, the, the legitimacy of the pullover—they can pull you over for uh, speeding and and end up in an impaired driving investigation. You know, they can pull you over for uh, uh, for a problem with uh, with your lights and and find something else wrong with your vehicle. Uh, of course, you can challenge the speeding offense because I'll tell you, the police officer probably wasn't focused on recording all of that evidence correctly on the ticket or in their notes. Uh, so you may have a good defense on the speeding offense. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they can pull you over for one reason and end up uh, ticketing you for another. Okay, let's go to Alex in Delta. Hey, Alex. Hi there. How you doing? Good. Go ahead. Um, I got a t- I was, I'm a truck driver. I got a ticket for unsecure load. I know it's mm. probably my incompetence on that. Now, another thing is, when I got the ticket, the police officer did not fill in my birthday correctly. When I went oh. to the courts and asked, uh, disputed that, the cop didn't show up. But what, when I talked to the judge, he goes, oh, that's a, that's a minor thing. Like, oh. If I get a ticket for incompetence for a not secure loan, yeah. is it deemed incompetence when they don't do the ticket properly? So you got, did you get convicted on it? No, I fought it. I got away with it because the police officer didn't show up the second time. Okay. Paul, what do you think of that one? Uh, you know, police officers make mistakes, but if they've identified you in all other respects, the uh, court is likely to say, look, you've been identified. It depends on what the mistake is, right? Uh, yeah. You know, there's times that uh, the, if the uh, wrong section of the Motor Vehicle Act is, is written down, then you can't really deal with what the allegation is going to be. Uh, but police in B.C. since, like, I think 1966... Uh, can just pull you over, take your driver's license, look at your driver's license, ask you a few questions about yourself, and they've identified you. And so if they've got your driver's license number written down, they've got your name written down, uh, and generally it can ID you, you know, can they prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt that it was you? You So even if if the cop wrote down your birth date wrong, that still wouldn't be grounds to throw the ticket out of court? No, but often, okay. you know, you're talking to the police officer beforehand and you're going to be cross-examining them and you're, you know, trying to bring to their attention that uh, maybe they didn't do the best job in this investigation. Maybe they were distracted as they were okay. writing the ticket by something else uh, and okay. they may not want to r- run a trial in those circumstances. Paul, it's always great to have you on here. We could fill the whole show with you. Thanks for coming on today. It's my pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. COVID-19 guidelines are changing, and over the past week, we've seen some public health orders relax, but that does not apply to the arts and culture sector yet. Our show contributor, John Jang, spoke with the Fire Hall Theater and how they're ready to safely reopen their doors. John. Good morning, Mike. We heard Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about the possibility of reopening in-person religious gatherings by mid-April, which is great news. But it does have certain people wondering, well, why not us? Why not the arts? Donna Spencer is the artistic producer for the Vancouver Fire Hall Theatre, and she joins us now. I appreciate you giving us some time here today. No worries. It's a subject I like to talk about, the arts. 
What is your response when you hear that Dr. Bonnie Henry is contemplating reopening in-person religious gatherings next month, but the art sector remains somewhat neglected? Well, uh, it's very concerning to me because, of course, the arts, we have a history of uh, ensuring that our audiences get in and out of our, our venues very safely. That's uh, their people that we know. Uh, sure, we have uh, random people that come in, but we also uh, have very strict protocols around how we let people into our theaters or allow people to come into our theaters, even when it's not COVID time. So, of course, uh, when we were allowed to be open with small audi- audiences last summer into November, we were doing just that. And as far as I know, I have heard of no cases of COVID being spread through uh, uh, attending an arts performance. So while I'm not against, I'm certainly not against the religious uh, uh, openings. I think that's truly, if that's uh, what people want in their life and need in their life, that's great. Um, But I know there are also a lot of people that want to go to see arts performances. So I'm hoping, I would be hoping that uh, the arts would be considered, uh, given that we've actually been reaching out to them since last November. Exactly. And I I think you make a good point. Nobody here is saying that in-person religious gatherings shouldn't be happening. But if it is going to be happening by mid-April, then there's some precedent there to be possibly following. For example, in most churches, most synagogues, uh, when you look at the design of the buildings, they're not too dissimilar from what your theater kind of looks like, right? Rows of seats, pews, if you will, and people social distanced, wearing masks in the inside. There's guidelines all around to make sure that everyone is as safe as possible. Well, and it's actually rather uh, amusing because theater actually came out of uh, out of uh, religious ceremonies. So there you go, way back when in the old days. Oh, Way wow. old days. I didn't even yes, know that, so uh, that's, that's fascinating. There are a lot of medieval plays that came out of church. But anyway, that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, right. Yes, in November we reached out, the group that I work, I'm working with, and um, this is all volunteer work, all the people on this committee were volunteering. Uh, to actually reach out and say, okay, um, could we have a task force or a working group to actually look at how we work within the arts so that we can reopen safely and make sure that our actors, our artists, our dancers, our musicians are all safe, as are our audiences and our staff that work at our theatres. We did not receive a response to that until two weeks ago, and I heard that it was being reviewed at that point. Uh, By then, we'd also submitted a document defining us, because that's one of the problems with this current gathering orders is theaters and religious ceremonies, everything like that is all lumped into one thing called an event. Uh, And we're certainly not events. There are probably 200 businesses across this province who operate independent cinemas or professional theaters professionally, uh, professional venues, so that people are safe and are cared for. So those businesses have all been closed. Uh, and which has a huge impact on small communities. They may have one theater in their town. They may have one independent cinema. It's also had a huge impact on Vancouver because there's been a, a total closure of all the spaces that normally entertain people, but also generate revenue that goes right back into the community because, of course, we're not, there are a lot of the theaters that run are not for profit, so the money goes right to pay the artisan and then back to pay the rents and buy the food and all that kind of thing. So there's a huge unemployment. Uh, of artists happening right now, and that's got to be addressed. So when we wrote in with our re- redefinition of, or our definition of what we were, we identified those factors. A lot of us have liquor licenses. A lot of us certainly have business licenses, but, but we're all legal entities, and we operate year-round with uh, staff that are professionally trained, that are employees who work under uh, WorkSafe BC, and, uh, of course, 
ActSafe, which is our industry uh, organization. So we're having difficulty understanding why we can't be moving forward or be part of the dialogue. We're also, we also submitted a line of guidelines basically taken from uh, the provincial health orders that we thought could be uh, used in terms of our organization. So we're just ready to, we're ready to talk. We are, there is some movement going on, I think, behind the scenes, but we haven't been active in a discussion. So I'm hoping that that's coming really soon. Well, you know, uh, you, you bring up these strong <laughs> points, and I love that you're elaborating uh, on some of the details. And when you talk about how there hasn't been really any opportunities for employment for, for a lot of these people, uh, is there any risk that some of these theaters could, because of the financial constraints, even though they are nonprofits, uh, that, that some of them might not be able to recover the way that they were before the closures and before COVID-19? I think there's no question about that. I think there, I think there's obviously businesses that are going to go under. Uh, some of the independent cinemas are independent businesses, so some of those businesses will be gone. Uh, I think uh, the fact that uh, uh, art centres are being hit across the province, all of those art centres have had investment from all levels of government to build them. So if they have to close down, that has a huge lot. That's a huge loss. A lot of our donor revenue comes from those who come to see shows and they like a show so they donate, don't money, donate money. A lot of the loyal audiences are donating, but that doesn't make up for, for example, um, the Fire Hall is a very small organization. We have probably uh, $300,000 that we make each year from the box office. That box office goes right back into the communities, I was saying, and to pay artists. This year, our box office is going to be something like, uh, I, because we were open with small audiences, it's probably going to be about $30,000. Mm. That's a huge cut. And even with the grants that we were able to get from uh, various levels of government to help us survive, that no, in no way replaces that loss of earned revenue. Right. Uh, I'm so glad that we were able to get your thoughts on uh, this particular topic. It's uh, certainly not over just yet. We're hoping for a positive update, but she is Donna Spencer, artistic producer with the Vancouver Fire Hall Theatre. Donna, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you for that, John. And John Jang joins me now. Interesting topic, John. I thought you raised a good point with her about the possibility of some of these theater and these arts and culture companies going under and actually going out of business while they're shut down. I mean, I think that's a legitimate concern and worry right now. Absolutely. And I think that's why we saw the Rio Theater, for example, having to uh, get creative and turn their license around and become a sports bar because they have to make money. Otherwise, we lose the Rio Theater, which is a landmark destination for a lot of people that love uh, live theater, arts, uh, concerts, all that stuff. Well, the Rio Theater is kind of the classic example here of uh, people pointing at the sort of absurdity in in some ways of, of the rules and laws that have come out, because here you've got the Rio Theater was shut down because of the public health order. And then you had a, a very in- ingenious move by the owner there to say, well, okay, we're a sports bar now. So instead of showing movies, we're going to show the Canucks game and let's go. We're back in business. And the provincial government, the government went along with that. The health authority said, yeah, that's fine. You can do that. And so a lot of people are saying, well, does this make any sense that you can go into this movie theater and watch a hockey game, but you can't go in there and watch a movie. Right. Like what? What's the, what's the difference? I mean, this just sort of shows how absurd the whole thing is. Exactly. And the magical yeah. force field uh, somehow got lifted, and it's totally safe yeah. to go in there now. It's 
quite confusing. And so I got nothing but appreciation for live arts. I used to be a theater junkie myself, Mike, so maybe I'm a little biased in this. All I know is we need to support the industry. And I just think about those people who are not working and are probably wondering, how am I going to pay my rent next month? Yeah. And as she mentioned, like some of these are independent companies that operate on a shoestring budget and very much in danger of going under. Like some of the big movie theater chains I suppose the big companies, big conglomerates are maybe better positioned to survive this thing. But I remember speaking on the show here a few weeks back to the president of the Canadian Movie Theater Association, and she was pointing at that Rio Theater saying, congratulations to them. This is great that they've been allowed to reopen as as a sports bar. But she also pointed out that most movie theaters do not have a liquor license so it's not like every movie theater can pull the same trick and just say, oh, it's, we're going to hang a sign up outside and say we're a sports bar now. They, they're just not able to do that. So it's only this the one Rio theater that's really been able to do this while all these other little companies and, and movie theaters and, and theater companies are still shut down. That's right. They can't find the loophole for them specifically because right. it doesn't apply to them, unfortunately. And so they're stuck in this limbo period. And clearly, as you heard from Donna, you know, they're ready to talk. They're ready to talk about the possibility of reopening safely, following all the guidelines that are in place. But so far, it's just been silence for at least the past two weeks. Right. Now, she says they're ready to talk, but is is Dr. Bonnie Henry ready to talk? I think Dr. Bonnie Henry wants to get these places reopened. I think she wants to reopen churches and synagogues and temples and and mosques and she wants to get those religious theaters religious uh, sites open again i think she wants probably to get movie theaters and arts theaters and open again so when is it going to happen do is there any indication at all when these rules could be relaxed no, not, nothing just yet. And I think that's part of the frustration is that when you have a committee that Don is a part of right now that is engaged or at least is supposed to be engaged in conversations with the Ministry of Health to try and figure out that date, that magical date when they can get back to normal, yeah. there hasn't been that reciprocation in communication just just yet. So okay. when you have all these people that are trying their best to make sure it's going to be safe and, and telling people, hey, uh, don't give up on us just yet. We will be back. Yeah. It's hard to get those hopes sustained over a period of time when you don't have a firm date to sort of prop up. Okay, we're watching it closely. Thank you, John. You got it. Thank you, Mike. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.